Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Welcome. Today, we're talking about saving the ocean, working in concert with industries and corporations. And my guest today is Paul Hosses. He's the founding CEO and president of the World Ocean Council. Hello, Paul. Hi, Rob. Hi. So I'm freezing up here in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, where it's like five, just five degrees above zero. And where are you calling us from? Well, I'm uh, very happily phoning from Hawaii, where we have a, a beautiful, cool winter day here. And... Um, I uh, empathize with everyone, though, that's uh, suffering from the cold. Well, we're going to be pulling some heat from Hawaii through the uh, radio here for you, for us or something. At least one of us. We're both doing well. Uh, let me say a bit about what we're going to talk about. So we're going to talk today about saving the ocean by bringing industries and corporations together to form the World Ocean Council. And Paul will tell us how that came about and go on about the uh, International Ocean Sustainability Development Issues at the World Ocean Council, where they're working with the business community on uh, climate change adaptations, port waste facilities to handle plastic pollution, conserving biodiversity in international waters, marine spatial planning, data collection from industry vessels, and responsible development of the Arctic. Uh, That diverse industries can collaborate to provide leadership and action ocean sustainability is both needed, but it's really remarkable how, you know, such diverse groups can come together. And, and Paul was a real instrumental role in making this all happen. You know, it's like being the midwife for all of this process. Um, but it's, it's just, remar- you know, people say just get it right, but it's so tricky to get everyone on board. And so um, that's kind of the underlying message here is how can complex communities come together and, and the first thing is, you know, identifying common ground. So we'll break it out and talk about specific issues that we've worked on, uh, that the World Ocean Council is working on. But first, um, Paul, tell us about, you know, what is the council and, and their mission and how it kind of came about. Sure. Thanks, Rob. Uh, happy to happy to um, to do that. I. Uh, I think really the, the, the foundational uh, element of this is that we've got a, a global ocean. It's one big ocean ecosystem and 71% of the planet's surface. And there's a lot of different activities going on in that ocean, a lot of different issues and challenges and impacts. And uh, one of the key ways in which we need to work, we collectively as a society need to work on uh, ensuring the health and productivity and and functioning of, of the ocean is by tackling those impacts. And, and that means engaging those, those different economic uh, users that are out there. And so there's a whole wealth of, <clears throat> of uh, and diversity of, of kinds of, of ocean use and activity that we all depend on. So shipping, fishing, aquaculture, uh, offshore renewable energy, offshore oil and gas, um, ports, and, and many others. And these companies in these various sectors are all, though, working in that same shared, dynamic, three-dimensional ocean, ocean ecosystem. And 
as our knowledge and understanding of the state of the ocean has increased over the last number of decades and the role of these um, impacts and challenges to ocean health has been better understood, it be, it's become clear that there is not one single company or one single industry sector that can completely change the trajectory and, and deal with those problems. And so the need was to bring the different the different industries together to think about themselves as a common ocean business community and develop the opportunities and the value for, for working together. So as you were saying earlier, really creating a community of action, uh, a community of shared interests and opportunities. Uh, and that's what we've done with the World Ocean Council. So we have leadership companies, big and small from across all those sectors and the supporting uh, business ecosystem, so to speak, of, of different companies that make all of those direct ocean users um, possible to do their business, as well as the surrounding sort of investment and insurance um, communities. And so we've we've created that global um, ocean business uh, community or leadership alliance, as we like to call it. And and now we're, we're mobilizing that um, that energy and that that interest and commitment to work on dealing with. Um, the challenges and the, uh, that are affecting the future of the ocean. Yes, um, it's it's good to hear that you call it an alliance because to me that means there's more of a commitment than um, you know, that you're allied on the certain issues. And it, your timing is excellent because in the last decade or a little bit longer, there's been a real emphasis on you know marine spatial planning with different getting different stakeholders involved. And it's sort of like a three-legged stool where you've got government and citizens, but that third leg is, is uh, the corporations and businesses and industries and, you know, making sure that, um, that they're at the table and not just driving the table or, uh, or absent is really key. Yeah, that's right. And um, that's really what yeah. uh, led me to, to um, developing the initiative um, going back almost a couple of decades to start reaching out to the, to the ocean business community and, um, <clears throat> and engaging, engaging them in uh, exploring initially whether they want to be engaged in a, in a more uh, coordinated and, and uh, collective uh, process uh, to, to get the business community involved. As you say, the, um, the governments and the intergovernmental organizations and the, um, what's called civil society, so through the non-government organizations, the NGOs, the environment organizations, and, and the, as well as the academic and science community, there was a growing um, engagement on a, on a more and more global scale regarding the ocean. But uh, what I saw from my vantage point back then a few decades ago was the absence or lack of a, a coordinated and structured engaging of, of, the, um, of the business community. And I had been working for organizations like the UN Environment Program and um, the global, um, uh, some of the global conservation and environment organizations, and and really um, uh, with this lifelong commitment of mine to ocean uh, conservation and sustainable development, really uh, uh, took on the, the challenge then to figure out how and and um, how we can best engage the business community, and that's what evolved into uh, the World Ocean Council then a number of years ago. But you've got such strong, you know, kind of silo groups of, of industry. You know, you've got the lobstermen, you've got the sport fish operators, you've got the, um, you know, just the commercial boat operators. And 
there's no way they see themselves as similar to, say, the oil drilling or the mineral mining people, and yet you manage to get everyone around the table somehow. Yeah, well, it's, it's, uh, it's a work in progress and, a, and an ongoing um, uh, challenge. And so the, the, um, the uh, role here is that we're working to play is to help, <coughs> help these, these various um, operators uh, from, from different industries think of themselves as part of a, a common um, ocean business community and that there are... Um, that there are benefits, business benefits. There's value to a level of interaction with with the other sectors, even if they do uh, sometimes, if not often, find themselves in real or perceived conflict uh, with that other sector. And so, at a minimum, um, it's about helping the different um, the different industries understand the other uh, the other economic players with whom they are. Uh, potentially in conflict with and and working out that business to business dialogue to um, engender that understanding and, and reduce the conflict and and this is where things like marine spatial planning come into play but also looking um, at the fundamental layer of where there is common interest and what can be worked on together and one of the things that comes up often uh, and early in in that that sort of discussion is the role of science and data, uh, that's to everyone's benefit to understand more about the ocean, about what's, uh, who's doing what, where, and when uh, in the ocean, and what kind of um, impacts uh, those activities are having both on the ocean ecosystem and its biodiversity and on other ocean users uh, and, and their activities. And so one of the, um, to deal with that and really create a, a common ground and common interest and platform of activity for example, that, that brings the different sectors together is what we call smart ocean, smart industries. And this is focused on harnessing the role of, of the um, ships and vessels and platforms and um, industry facilities that are out in the ocean to be uh, hosting or deploying instruments. In other words, they can put, uh, you can put sensors for example, on a ship, a commercial container ship, on a fishing boat, or on a fixed installation like an aquaculture facility or the wind farm that collects data on ocean conditions. And, and this is to everyone's benefit to have uh, more and better data that feed into the, into the science community um, databases and the ability to then um, map and monitor and, and uh, understand the ocean situation. That's so important that you're having them collect the data because a huge um, thing that you provide for all of them is you give everyone voice. And too often you don't listen to the other groups until you're in a, a hearing or a regulatory thing. And then, you know, so this way, you know, everyone's got a voice and they learn about each other's perspective. And often the same data means different things to different people. So to fully understand that, you know, the data is, is just great. Are you finding that um, evidence that, that they kind of own it and they kind of feel yeah. responsible for and kind of like, you know, by having discoveries or something? Or? Yeah, well, it's, it's, um, there's been um, a lot of interest from a variety of companies from all range of different um, uh, kinds of ocean use uh, communities such as uh, fishing and, and shipping and cruise tourism, et cetera, in participating in this program to um, 
have uh, sensors or deploy um, instrumentation uh, to to collect data. And and one of the um, <clears throat> one of the most basic um, concerns for for a company that's that's operating in the ocean is safety uh, safety and, and maintaining the um, you know the uh, the safety of their of their crews and their staff and their and also the integrity um, of their their ships and vessels and their their platforms or installations and so uh, for example more and better data <clears throat> from any and all of these industry players in that in that huge ocean that covers 71% of the planet uh, helps then feed into the ability of the science community uh, to and the government agencies to model and forecast extreme weather events. So the, the hurricanes and cyclones um, that uh, are with climate change becoming increasingly, increasingly frequent and, and stronger. Um, so to understand those events better and have better uh, lead time and warning about where they're going to hit, what their path and trajectory is going to be, and what the intensity is going to be, that saves lives. And there's nothing, of course, more fundamental to that to someone who's operating a company that has ships and, and people out at sea. And so there's a real common common ground around that. So it may be data from one industry that it ends up being improving a forecast situation that helps protect lives of another industry, but people see that that common um, common value and, 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 and benefit not only to them as businesses, but to society uh, overall, and so that we can help um, um, better protect and, and warn and prepare for these events as they, um, as they affect uh, coastal communities, particularly in developing countries, uh, and so it really is a, a win-win kind of situation. Oh, totally. Nothing pulls people together than having to work together against a hurricane or huge weather impact event. And, um, right. you know, as you said, just a little bit of information, if it can, you know, extend an hour earlier, the reporting, that's quite accurate. You know, that's, 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 that's lives, like you said, to, to know, you know, yeah. as much as we can about. And currently right now where there's this tendency because 98% of the energy that's supposed to be escaping the planet that's bouncing back into us is going into the ocean. And so we're seeing these Category 3 storms, hurricanes, turn into Category 5 in 24 hours, like Irma and Maria did. And um, so in those cases, you know, any additional warning about what that's going to happen based on more data is, is huge. Thank you. Thank you yeah. for helping. Yeah, yeah. And, to, we, uh, and just to give our, our listeners a, just to give your listeners a sense of, you know, the importance of, of and an opportunity for engaging industry in all of this, as as you were just saying about weather reporting, I mean, we have, we as a society globally have vastly improved our our ability to uh, understand and predict weather, <clears throat> the weather based on a um, hundred years or more of uh, ships sending in in very basic um, wind and temperature sort of information, and so this is really building on what we're doing with the Smart Ocean Smart Industries program at the World Ocean Council is really building on and expanding that concept to be you know, a whole range of other sorts of parameters and and um, and involvement of, of the business community. But to give your, your readers, uh, sorry, your listeners a, a sense of the, uh, the uh, scope and potential here, there are uh, 80, approximately 80,000 merchant vessels uh, out applying the ocean waters. There's an estimated three to four million fishing boats um, in, in the ocean. 
There are, and of course, many of those in coastal waters, but also some very much in the, in the high seas and international waters as well. Um, there are uh, thousands and thousands of, of various platforms and fixed installations of uh, oil and gas and aquaculture and increasingly wind farms and other uh, renewable energy installations. And on the seabed, that's something that people may not think about. There is um, one million uh, kilometers of uh, submarine telecommunication cables, and that's 98% of Internet traffic is going via those submarine cables. So anybody who's uh, online right now, uh, they're part of the ocean economy, uh, even if they didn't know it. Wow, because the cables that we need our Internet connections to are passing under ocean waters. That's that's right. Okay, let's let's go um, from the global to a little more regional. Um, with the, the melting of uh, Arctic sea ice, we now have the Northwest Passage and different parts of the ocean being open for uh, traffic like never before. And what kind of role is the World Ocean Council playing with that? Yeah, and we so we have been um, also scaling our uh, our approach to engaging industries across the sectors um, on a global scale. We've been scaling that to a a regional and national level uh, in different instances where there are priority needs and opportunities. And where we've been most active on that has been in relation to the Arctic. And as you, as you pointed out, the, the, with climate change, um, there has been a, an unfortunate steady reduction in the, um, the level of ice uh, coverage and this is really effectively creating a new ocean uh, in that there's increasingly um, a level of open or reduced level of ice, open water or reduced level of ice that allows for shipping and other uh, activities to take place. Um, and so we worked to, going back um, quite a few years, then uh, initiate and pioneer the the convening of the various of companies from the various sectors who are becoming more interested and active in the Arctic to start uh, really uh, developing this sense of a common um, responsibility for um, sustainable and responsible use and, and, and development uh, of the Arctic. And this is really, um, really developed well. And so we have, getting back to our earlier discussion, we've focused on <clears throat> common ground that's of mutual benefit to those companies and of interest to other stakeholders like governments and the environment community and the scientists. And that is, again, focusing on this um, role of, of uh, data collection in the region. And so we have a, a whole program of effort to particularly um, uh, engage industry in that, um, in that uh, collecting of data from ships and, uh, and fishing boats and tourism boats and including cruise ships um, as a way to help better understand the Arctic as it's changing and to increase, again, the safety and responsibility of, of operations there. And to give you one specific example, you mentioned the Northwest Passage. So that's the, um, the fabled uh, route for transit uh, across the, the top end of Canada uh, from between the Atlantic and the Pacific. And with the reduction in, in uh, temperatures and ice cover, over the last number of years, it's it's become um, it's become a, 
a possibility to to transit that Northwest Passage. And a couple of years ago, uh, the first regular-sized cruise ship transit of the uh, of the Northwest Passage took place, and so we reached out <coughs> to that company and and uh, explained the. Uh, the opportunity to participate in in data collection while they were undertaking this historic transit, and they they eventually agreed and participated in a in a data collection and sharing program, and that's uh, that's an example of what we're <clears throat> what we're working on elsewhere in the Arctic and globally. And, and <clears throat> once we do get the uh, get through to the right people and the right companies, they are often more than more than happy to participate in these sorts of programs uh, with the Arctic. I would highlight though that the the vast majority of increased uh, movement of of uh, vessels is on the other side of the Arctic, what's called the northern sea route, the part between Asia and Europe across the top of mainly russia um, and there's um there's quite a bit of um, increase in, in movement there. And so we focused a lot of our efforts on that, that part of the Arctic um, uh, in this in the current phase of effort. Yeah, a decade ago we were debating which one's going to open first, the Northwest Passage or the Northeast Passage. But, but you're saying the supply and demand is driving this. That's, that's right. The, um, yeah. the, uh, the need, the, the opportunity, and the, the uh, sort of value for the traffic um, ship traffic has been much, much greater <clears throat> uh, on the other side, on the northern sea route. That's two things. Um, one is the, the movement of goods from, from Asia to Europe. And, and of course, the, uh, the, um, the benefit on that is, uh, is that it's a, it's a shorter route. And so to the extent that um, cargo and, and other goods are able to move, uh, other goods meaning uh, commodities such as um, uh, such as the bulk products that go grain and other things that, that move across um, in in shipping uh, but to the extent that they are able to use that northern sea route from between Asia and Europe across the top of, of Russia there's a significant savings in time and therefore fuel and therefore co2 emissions emissions so there's a a, um, uh, a value in terms of shipping reductions in, in uh, greenhouse gas emissions that, that come from there. And the second big driver on that Arctic um, uh, movement of traffic is that there's, in fact, quite a bit of uh, <clears throat> new um, uh, gas uh, exports that are emerging from the top end of Russia, and those are uh, being exported out from, the, from northern Russia, either to Europe or to Asia, um, and I, I would I would highlight that uh, for the shipping industry and many other um, parts of uh, our global economy that uh, gas and LNG are going to be are becoming a very significant um, transitional fuel that much lower greenhouse gas emission um, levels and uh, a cleaner fuel. And so there's a, a big movement in the shipping industry to transition into the use of LNG as a fuel that's uh, a, a very positive development. Well, that is, yes. For, you mean for the ships to use? Because well, the ships are, to use, yeah. But, and then also, yeah, yeah. as I say, there, you know, other, other, um, other um, energy demands for heating, for powering, um, right. for creating electricity, et cetera. And so to get that, that, that those gas resources from where they exist in, in you know, uh, in reservoirs uh, below the surface 
uh, on land and in, and in the ocean uh, is requiring a, a growth in the, the shipping uh, capacity for moving yeah. LNG uh, to to the market. And it's also important to remind people that, you know, one ship could carry 100 trains worth of cars. So if they could, you know, take the, they could lighten the load, the railroads from Vladivostok to, to um, you know, Norway or something with um, across the Arctic, that it's important to, to get transit off the trains and onto boats whenever possible. And then, of course, trains are 100 times more efficient than trucks are. So it's all kind of a, right. a cumulative process there. Uh, we're going right, uh, right. to take a short break. We're going to take a short break now. And when we come back, we'll talk about some of the adaptations for climate change that, that you're working with uh, you know, on smaller islands and coastal areas. So we'll be right back after Great. this message. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate, the number four, oceans.org. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. 
Hi, we're talking with Paul about the World Ocean Council and how the industries and corporations are coming together in the council to save the ocean, to increase you know, conservation efforts, and to reduce our carbon footprints by having more efficient uh, equipment and, as he was saying before, about uh, up in the Arctic and, and you know... Uh, so, um, Paul, how can um, people learn more about the Ocean Council? Yeah, thanks, Rob. We're uh, happy to have people come have a look at uh, the information on our website at uh, www.oceancouncil.org. So that's Ocean Council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L, always one word, dot O-R-G. And, um, and there's a place there that you can then, um, if you want to contact us at, at info at oceancouncil.org, just send, um, send, uh, make contact and, and send us uh, any questions or thoughts you might have. And, um, and there's a the wealth of information there and links to other sites that relate to this overall uh, development of what we uh, call uh, corporate ocean responsibility and engaging uh, the business community as our core mission in, in uh, ocean sustainable development, um, and which, as we've been talking about, is, is just an increasingly understood uh, key component to uh, ensuring we've got a healthy, um, a healthy ocean for the future and for all of our kids and grandkids. Yeah. Um, you were talking about the Arctic. Um, what, what kinds of adaptations for climate change are you working with for, uh, say, small islands and coastal areas. Yeah, so part of the, um, <clears throat> the broader context of, of how the, the ocean is changing um, that we, um, <clears throat> we alluded to the increase in the frequency and intensity of, of what's called extreme weather events, so hurricanes or cyclones and typhoons and things, and that's all um, <clears throat> part of a, a context of also... Uh, um, sea level rise, and these things are combining uh, along with uh, parts of the world and increased rainfall that leads to coastal flooding uh, to a, a real serious um, set of impacts to to uh, human lives and coastal communities and, and coastal infrastructure um, through the, through the um, the impacts of these events, and and they are especially. Uh, devastating and tragic in, in developing countries <clears throat> where there's less um, robust infrastructure and less the government uh, capacity often uh, to um, be there to help um, prepare and, and, and have resilient or, or robust uh, <clears throat> infrastructure in communities. And that is particularly um, being evidenced in being felt and experienced um, in small island states, as they're called, small island developing states. And this is, uh, if people will remember back to a little over a year ago, <clears throat> excuse me, in, um, in the, uh, the fall, the late part of the year in the Caribbean in 2017, the, uh, <clears throat> the number of, of major storms that hit Caribbean islands. And we had... Um, that really exemplifies this situation. And so we're working to engage the business community to provide the sort of leadership and, and coordination to ensure that we have in these countries uh, 
as I say, robust um, coastal infrastructure and ports uh, that can really help help make sure that the the coastal economies the, the or the island economies are able to continue to function in the face of sea level rise and, and these these major storms and and hurricanes so in other words the uh, for a small island country the um, the port is the is the critical piece of of um, the the business and economic development potential of that country in addition to the airport but the the vast majority of goods and in the and in places where cruise tourism is important, like the Caribbean, a huge part of the economic vi- viability of those countries is possible because of a good functioning port and associated coastal roads and, and, and other infrastructure. And that infrastructure also supports then the, uh, the basic, uh, the, 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 uh, the power system, the, um, the electricity grid, uh, the fuel supply lines, etc. And so we're working to really create this business case for port and coastal infrastructure um, resilience and adaptation to climate change as a fundamental need for ensuring these these countries and their communities can uh, be safe and and continue to um, to function properly in the in the face of, of these changes. Uh, can you give us an example of one community? Sure. So there are. Um, uh, and just yeah, to, to 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 dive into a bit more detail here. So, <clears throat> the um, the need for the the tourism industry to continue to to access um, to access ports uh, that have been that have been affected by or are going to be affected by these by these hurricanes in the Caribbean. So after that, uh, those um, uh, October November. Uh, hurricanes in the um, in the Caribbean, uh, the port of San Juan in, in Puerto Rico was was significantly damaged, and um, the the cruise ships were unable to to dock, and so there was a, an immediate um, effect on tourism uh, arrivals in the country, and of course the the surrounding um, capacity of, of that of, of Puerto Rico was was affected in in terms of the huge impact. The hurricanes had on on uh, the roads and power lines and and housing and hotels etc. Um, but a fundamental level uh, of that impact was that even as and when the other infrastructure got uh, was able to be used, if the port was uh, the, and, and it was and the, the port not able to receive the cruise ships, then that um, that economic um, uh, critical economic activity. Was just not um, not part of the not part of um, what was what was going on, and so those that work in that industry uh, had that additional economic hit from the lack of being able to um, to undertake their, their their work with the tourism industry, um, and so we've we've seen that kind of impact increasingly documented um, uh, as as these uh, as these effects. Uh, these impacts from hurricanes take place, and and it really expands across the entire spectrum of any industry that uses a port. And I'll, just to give you a uh, a very very specific anecdote, um, uh, as we were talking about this at the uh, the climate change, uh, the global uh, intergovernmental climate change event um, in um, in 2017, I was uh, 
speaking to a woman who is the head of sustainability for a major um, cereal company. And she was saying, yeah, that's right. You know, the, the, um, the port is out of service and I'm unable to get my cornflakes delivered uh, to that particular location. And so there's a business impact to, to, these, um, to these ports being uh, inoperable and uh, out of operation. And so we really want to harness that business incentive for the, uh, for the value it brings to, the, uh, to that island, to that country uh, in, in many different ways. Is there hope for Kellogg and other corporations to um, help with uh, Puerto Rico's harbor or something? Well, so what we're doing is 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 working to bring together a uh, a coalition of of companies that that uh, recognize that they depend on those ports for their business, and that the, the, the that country or island community uh, depends on that port as well. And so there's a there's a very um, a significant synergy there. And so we um, we're, we're forming that uh, sort of platform to to bring together the shipping, the cruise industry, the basic um, um, uh, the firms that are using those ships to, to, to get to get their products um, delivered or exported from those countries as a as a real business driver for very proactively looking at all the key ports um, in, in developing countries and in small island countries to understand which are which are most vulnerable and what ways are they vulnerable and what's the uh, what's the um, the adaptation work that needs to be done is it a stronger uh, higher uh, breakwater um, or uh, usually and or um, what's the role of what's called green infrastructure in helping ensure the um, the resilience of that coastal infrastructure, that port, and, and the coastal community. And so by green infrastructure, uh, this means things like uh, mangrove forests, uh, coral reefs, uh, and other coastal ecosystems that serve as natural um, buffers to the impacts of, <clears throat> of things like hurricanes. And so we want to make sure that those natural systems are being uh, optimized and being maintained and, and if needed, uh, restored, so that they can work in in partnership with the the, the human built infrastructure, uh, and and more and more evidence is coming forward to, sh- to show how those natural ecosystem uh, green infrastructure um, possibilities actually you know reduce costs. They're they're much more efficient and effective uh, when we work with the ecosystem in that way and. Um, and, and look at a more holistic sort of approach to how we use our coastal and marine areas for both economic and environmental uh, values. Absolutely. That's, that's very interesting and kind of, and it's exciting that you're able to step back and get a more global perspective because often the wealthiest ports get the most, you know, can squeak the loudest and like Tortola of the British Virgin Islands and uh, yet you're able to look at uh, what the needs are and see how best to apply your resources based on the needs of the harbors instead of just who's got the most clout. Right. And this is, this is really this. A lot of these issues around um, ocean change and ocean challenges are uh, global, but we need to kind of work it in both directions, going from the global to the regional and national and local and, and in the other direction. And so um, there is a lot of great 
the work that's going on in the the better off countries um, on um, understanding what needs to be done to uh, maintain the um, and adapt the ports and, and make them resilient and, and climate proof. Um, but we need to then transfer that experience and that knowledge and adapt it to um, small islands and developing countries uh, in both to help those countries, but also at, at one level, it's also, it's a, it's a global economy that's connected up by the ocean and particularly by the, the shipping industry and um, 90 plus percent of, of international trade goes via ships. And so any of those ports that are not functioning because they've been um, hit by one of these extreme weather events um, is, is a, has a ripple effect in, in the global economy. And so it's to everyone's interest um, to, uh, to be able to share the knowledge and experience of port and coastal adaptation um, from the areas that can afford to do the research and the work. Uh, and so we'll, we want to facilitate and accelerate that, that transfer of knowledge. And as I say, get, um, create the opportunity for uh, uh, the different parts of the world to, to move forward on this critical issue. Well, right. You were saying that in order to have a uh, transaction, you got to have two ports that are operating, and apparently we need more than just the top 12 ports to make it all work. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we'll come back, we'll talk about uh, handling the plastic pollution problem right after this break. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate4oceans.org. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm talking with Paul Hostess of the World Ocean Council. And you can see him at www.oceancouncil.org. Uh, Paul, um, my gosh, we've been rushing through the whole program with just like a few minutes left. We're going to step through a few things quickly, and uh, maybe we can have you back some time to go into more detail or something. But um, tell us a bit about uh, how uh, plastics are being managed. It's such a problem with plastic pollution in the oceans. Yeah, well, certainly the we've got a huge global, very complex, uh, challenging situation with all the plastics that are entering the ocean and breaking down into microplastics and even <clears throat> nanoplastics that uh, entering the food chain of marine organisms and even now getting into food supplies for the humans. So it's it's really um, <clears throat> really uh, one of it's one of the defining um, ocean challenges uh, of of our time. Uh, the, uh, and there's some great efforts now being made to harness uh, solutions where they need to be done, which is on land, to <clears throat> both prevent plastics from entering the ocean in the first place through, through waste management and, and so on, and also to get back to the real fundamentals in terms of the material cycle and what kind of materials are we using and, how, and, and the whole idea of um, uh, who's who's using what sort of products and where they end up <clears throat> and and the um, and changing that whole that whole fundamental uh, level of, of use of materials uh, by society but in that more immediate um, immediate um, articulation of this of this plastics problem there is a, a portion um, although 80% is estimated to come from land-based sources now, there is then 20% or so of, in general, <clears throat> marine debris, as it's called, uh, different kinds of waste uh, that enter the ocean, including plastics, that come from shipborne sources or other ocean-based sources from platforms and things. And there's a, most international companies do a, a very good job of managing their waste and making sure they get transported back to land uh, and disposed of properly. Uh, one of though the challenges on that is getting back again to the ports as where all of these different uh, vessels come ashore, there's a need to have what's called port waste reception facilities in all of these uh, places where the, the, sh- the, the merchant ships, the fishing boats, uh, other kinds of vessels uh, come in. They need to, uh, as they're doing their job of um, separating and managing their waste on board, when they come ashore, they need to dispose of it properly. And so there's a uh, a, a great need for a global uh, network of adequate port waste reception facilities, uh, particularly in, in many of the developing countries, um, so that so that those companies can can make sure that their waste are being handled properly when they when they do get into port. And so we have a, a, a major effort. We're working to get underway at the World Ocean Council to. Um, create a, a global and, and, and particularly a regional effort in different parts of the world to um, get the governments and the, uh, the development assistance agencies, the development banks, and the investors involved in, um, 
in supporting the development of these these waste management facilities and ports. Bravo. How about um, another concern is um, the biodiversity of marine life in international waters, and um, how does that maybe overlap with uh, having more... um, having environmental impact statements done in ocean areas, like offshore areas. Sure. Yeah, sure. So the, the, uh, the, these, these different kinds of wastes have impacts on biodiversity, and there are other um, um, effects of, of the, uh, the economic and industrial activities in the ocean. Of course, you know, the, everything we do as humans has an impact. Uh, and so it's a matter of understanding and managing those impacts. Uh, a large part of the unknowns in terms of the ocean situation in, in that regard have been out in the high seas or international waters. Um, and so there's uh, efforts underway to better um, understand and manage um, the effects of, of business acti- economic activities in the high seas. Uh, to give you one specific example um, that we're working significantly on, there's the transfer of invasive species um, via different uh, mechanisms that create impacts on biodiversity and natural ecosystems. And so one of the main pathways for the movement of invasive species in the ocean is by what's called biofouling. So this is the growth of of barnacles and other things on the sides of a ship or um, a fishing boat or other kinds of vessels and equipment that gets moved around the world. Uh, and so we, uh, we are working because it's a multi-industry and global scale issue. We're working through the World Ocean Council in partnership with the International Maritime Organization of the United Nations uh, and other UN agencies to, and launching this year, a major program to um, tackle that issue and and reduce the effects, uh, the impacts that this um, that this biofouling and transfer of invasive species can have. And there's various uh, technologies uh, to prevent the biofouling and treat the the, um, the surfaces, the hulls of ships, and these create then investment opportunities. And so we're also working as part of our ocean investment platform at the World Ocean Council to focus on specific challenge areas such as biofouling um, to accelerate the, um, the engagement of the investment community in supporting technology and solutions and innovations that can solve these problems and be taken up by, by the businesses that need those solutions. Bravo. So I hear you have a sustainable conference coming up. We have we have the uh, annual uh, gathering of the ocean business community that's focused on uh, sustainable development. We call it the SOS, the Sustainable Ocean Summit, and that um, moves around the world. and And it is the only regular gathering of ocean industries around uh, sustainability uh, and environmental management on a global cross sectoral scale. It's coming up in November again this year, uh, and we'll be in 2019. We'll be in Paris, and certainly um, invite, uh, in addition to the business community, which is the main constituency there. Uh, we have governments and UN agencies and uh, investors and also scientists and, and uh, environment community representatives um, that also participate. So that's uh, the SOS Sustainable Ocean Summit in, in Paris in November. Yeah, I know certain environmental organizations are working closely with businesses 
your members to um, address these ocean problems and so forth. Um, uh, we're just about out of time, so help me um, summarize the work of um, our, you know, where do you want to go from here with the World Ocean Council? Yeah, so, I mean, Rob, this is a great opportunity to communicate all this. We have this growing um, level and number of, of uh, at, and often at very high levels in these companies, companies that want to get involved in being a part of the solution and for the ocean, recognize they can't do it on their own, and so they're coming together through the World Ocean Council, um, and we've got a steadily increasing level of involvement of the investment and finance community in helping um, uh, support the technology and the solutions. And the main goal here is really adapting and changing business practices to uh, to tackle those problems and, and using good science and good data uh, to identify and 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 drive forward with those with those solutions. And so it's really a a message of uh, and an effort of optimism and collaboration and leadership and especially action then on on implementing solutions from uh, a committed and coordinated business community in the ocean. Paul, thank you. This has been really interesting, learning about what comes out of when lots of industries and corporations get together and and work in concert and are able to um, apply you know innovative ways of. Once I understand the issues and stuff, it's just incredible, the expansiveness of what you guys are doing. And I know you have a great reputation in Washington for working with uh, legislators and helping them find their way through uh, legislation and stuff. So, again, thank you for um, all the work of the World Ocean Council. Thank you, Rob. It's been a real pleasure to, and uh, really great to have this opportunity to share what we're doing and, and certainly encourage people to visit the website to, to find more information. Yes, and the website is www.oceancouncil.org. Thank you, Paul. Thank um, you so much, Rob. I look forward to continuing the discussion. Yes, yes. Um, we didn't go into you know, mineral mining, and we talked about some more environmental actions and enforcement and stuff. Um, and we'd also love to hear more about specific uh, towns and uh, specific places, like the way you went into talking about Puerto Rico and stuff. So um, we'll have to have you back in a few months um, when you've got some more to talk about. Thank you. Uh, My pleasure. This, uh, so uh, next week, I'm going to be talking with the, the Extinction Rebellion, which is coming out of uh, the, uh, the United Kingdom and is spreading, uh, has spread into Europe and Australia, and um, they're setting up actions for New York and, and uh, elsewhere in the U.S. in the spring. So that's next week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Uh, at the same time, same station. And that's it for this time. I want to thank all of you for listening. And uh, please uh, take care of yourselves. And then if you have an, and then please take a moment to take care of this planet of ours. Thanks for listening. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then.